Do you intentionally eat right when we start our podcast? Not really. I got hungry. I think you do. What is it? Spaghetti. Spaghetti? Yeah. It's spaghetti. <laughs> Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 124. Connor, you want to do the honors and tell us the title? It is Halloween Hangover 2, Dead by Dawn. Today, we are actually going to talk about all the movies we didn't talk about in previous podcasts, horror movies that we showed this October 2022, and or just go wherever the conversation goes about horror. We've said it a lot. This is my feeling. I don't know if everyone else agrees, but horror is probably the biggest, most limitless genre in movies, and it has the most subgenres. You can just talk endlessly about horror. And so every at the end of every October, we do our Halloween hangover uh who is with us today oh hey it's daniel hey it's me connor lloyd cruz the people's champion uh, hello America. tired i'm gonna go back to bed very tired yes because we're recording this at 4 a.m in the morning oh wait i'm sorry this is 11 a.m in the morning Phil. A man deserves to sleep. There you go. The gang is all here. This week, Secret Movie Clubbers, by the time that you hear this, we will be doing a return to our John Ford Director of the Year. We are going full speed to get in all the movies that we said we would show. And tonight, we are showing two that rarely get screened, but are really key to his understanding John Ford. The Iron Horse, which was really the big hit that probably made John Ford John Ford the rest of his life. A silent film in the mid-20s that was such a success. It was like his Jaws. He was pretty much set up for the rest of his career. And then another great silent film of his, Three Bad Men. Tomorrow, Saturday, we are doing, and actually I want to thank Edwin for this, because Edwin was the first one who ever put it on my radar. We are doing the 90s Gamera trilogy. If you love kaiju, you usually think of Godzilla and all the monsters associated with Godzilla. Forget everything you've seen about Godzilla. Gamera is truly one of the greatest kaiju movies ever made. That's a big thing for me saying that, but Gamera is truly one of the best monster movies ever made. Uh, there you go. That's what Edwin told me. And so consequently, we are doing the 1990s, not the 1960s, which is another series of Gamera movies, but the 1990s Gamera 1, 2, and 3. Next Thursday, we are doing, in a partnership with Somos El Cine, a screening of Viridiana, uh, my personal favorite Louis Bunuel film, and actually one of my top 50 movies of all time. If you've never seen Viridiana, it's pretty mind-blowing, and I love it, and I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. And as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. I will say this, because you should know this, probably next Monday, that is three days from now, we are going to announce a event that is happening December 3rd at the Camelot Theater in Palm Springs. I'm still figuring out exactly how I can talk about this event, but I will tell you that it is a bucket list event for many cinephiles. It is something we have been working on for years while the idea of maybe driving to Palm Springs might initially be like, huh, that's going to be a lot. I do have a sense that if we do this right, it'll be one of the most memorable nights of cinema in your life. And fun, by the way. As Edwin always says, Edwin always groans when I go on about Bergman, because I love Bergman. I'm obsessed with Bergman. This is not three Bergman movies. These are three movies that the world loves. So much so that Edwin is even excited about it. Edwin, you want to make any comment on it before I move on? All I can say is this is the greatest thing in the history of cinema. Think in your head what a what a bucket list night would be of three movies. We're showing the Meet the Parents trilogy. <laughs> yes. Out of order. Wow, non-linearly. That's great. The five-hour Sergio Leone cuts of each, which no one knew actually existed. 
So today is November 1st, actually the first day of Dia de los Muertos, where my son and my wife and I are creating a little altar today and tomorrow, which are the two days you celebrate Dia de los Muertos. So actually, in a way, Halloween hasn't ended because the origins of Halloween are much closer to what Dia de los Muertos still is than what we do in America. Nevertheless. Well, for white people like me, Daniel and Edwin, it's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is, Craig. Get over it. <laughs> I'm glad how Edwin didn't even pick that up. Nevertheless, last night was October 31, Halloween, and we did, as we always do, every movie, except for the Richard Pryor, for special reasons, but every movie in October was a horror movie or horror-themed. Of course, we couldn't do a podcast on all of them, so today we're going to talk about some of the ones we didn't talk about and just the state of horror and horror in general. Yeah, I did all sorts of spooky stuff this last month. I have a list of things I did and movies I watched that I would recommend to, you know, to various degrees. I did my usuals. Uh, the Los Feliz 3 had a screening of Spookies on 35mm done by Cinematic Void. And that was really fun. And I did all my usuals like Trick or Treat, which Craig was gracious enough to program. And I rewatched Halloween 3 like I do every year. I dressed up. I hadn't for the last couple of years because two years ago, nobody dressed up or not a lot of people did because it was COVID. But uh, yeah, I went as a new character I made up, Toilet Head, who's like pinhead but instead of killing you with sexy bondage torture it's with diarrhea kind of like the oregon trail demon but you like you went all out people i know they're if people check out the photo that connor's going to create for this pod but you walked in your face was you had powdered your face white you had a toilet rim over your head you had a hellraiser <laughs> box did you purchase the rim or did you use just borrow it from your home i'm a heavy user of my toilet seat so i would not use it <laughs> as a costume as well no this was a fresh respectable seat okay that now i have just an extra toilet seat for in the future the origin of the toilet head thing was literally just i bought a new toilet seat recently because my old one was disgusting and when i was installing it i took i just took funny pictures of it before i did it took one on my head and then um, me and my uh, friend Bobby, it just became like a, a running joke about like toilet head. You know, I have I have such to show you, etc. All that good, good humor that comes from it. Speaking of which, new Hellraiser movie was pretty good. Not great, but a good spooky Halloween Hellraiser movie. I watched through all the Halloween movies I hadn't seen, which was not a particularly rewarding experience, to be totally honest. But I, I actually really liked Rob Zombie's second Halloween. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, wow. Hot take. I keep hearing that that's kind of the underrated, that's sort of like the one that'll get reappraised as being like a pretty iconic piece of cult horror filmmaking. For some reason, for Halloween 2, Rob Zombie decided to try to do his best fire walk with me. It's pretty good. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I saw Halloween Ends, and without spoiling it, I was not a fan of Halloween Kills, the second one of the new trilogy. But the new one is frankly bizarre. It is the most interesting shift of a sequel. Like, I don't think it's a great movie, but I think what it tries to do as a sequel is one of the coolest horror sequel things that I've seen done. I'm learning that maybe Halloween has I've done that a few times. I mean, it's been around for so long. And so, you know, you might as well do weird stuff. I will say Rob Zombie's first Halloween, people should look up the scene, the way they introduced Laurie Strode in that movie. It's probably the worst character introduction I've ever seen in any movie ever. Her parents are in the kitchen or like adoptive parents because they do the whole like she's actually Michael Myers's like baby sister thing. Uh, her adoptive parents are the dad's talking about how like 
and you know there's the, the local hardware stores going out of business because corporations and big box stores and the mom's like yeah that place is overrated and then Lori walks in first time we've seen her as you know teenage Lori. she runs the corner and says yeah mr whoever runs the store he would always be really he was a pervert too and the mom was like i don't want to hear it and then Lori grabs two bagels and starts rubbing them on herself and goes like the, the guy at the hardware store touched me mom it's like what why introduce your character this way it's really bad it's like i can see by craig's reaction it you know me everybody here knows me i like most movies and this was this one pushed my limit did you reach over in the notepad where you were taking notes and just write no well i was also watching the longer version so the longer version has an even extended version where she then gets a bagel and starts miming like penetration with it with her finger why would you get the longer versions the longer versions are because never... it's the that's the blu-ray set i got from years ago that had all of the movies that's just where they try to get you to buy something more by shoving in stuff that they knew shouldn't have been in there in the first place it was the one i had access to okay it's also like mid late 2000s every movie had an extended cut i did horror nights this year did the express pass which is the way to go on that we played pt craig and edwin uh, yeah do you remember that day edwin it was awful the day you and i went round and round in that scary house that was pretty stupid i didn't like it it was not even scary but it was entertaining I had fun. I did enjoy playing it with you. I felt like we bonded. If if we had guns, though, I know. been a whole different story. Edwin's main issue with PT <laughs> is that he didn't have guns. Edwin's idea that guns somehow will remove or get rid of trauma seems flawed to me inherently, but <laughs> that's that was your theory. What, what would what would gun have done for Sync Baby? I don't know. I would have throw something in there, blow it up, and blow the whole house up. I, I should burn the house to the ground. But is it a house or is it your brain? You know. Makes you think. The big stuff I wanted to shout out for Halloween. No, you made Edwin leave. I made he's he's out of here. It's fine. He doesn't deserve to hear all this. Charging my computer. One video game, Daniel, you, you had recommended this to me before, and I had been on my radar for a while, but it was on sale as Inscription, which is a horror video game. It's like a card game inside of a horror game. It's like you're trapped in an escape room with a psychopath who wants to play Pokemon with you. I'm in like the second part of the game. The game also becomes a different game at a certain point, which is interesting. Very cool game. I saw three movies this month for my uh, my uh, movie night that I really liked. One is a, a movie called Death Ship, which is a 1980 horror movie. It is charmingly lame and borderline wholesome. Any names in it? George Kennedy is the big name. Uh, this yacht crashes, something happens to it. There's like 10 survivors and they come across this creepy ghost ship, death ship. And then while they're on it, it kind of becomes like, which is weird because it came out the same year, but it kind of becomes almost the Shining-esque where like George Kennedy is driven mad by the ship and the ship's also kind of killing people off. And with the exception of one shower scene, you could watch this one with your grandma. It's it's wholesome. It's like Scooby-Doo almost in a lot of ways. And she'd be like, that George Kennedy's still hot stuff. He's still got it. <laughs> That's what my grandmother does at a time. I used to watch movies with her. Multiple times during the movie, a character gets bonked on the head and knocked out for seemingly only the purpose of explaining where they were during these other scenes. They had these scenes that needed to happen without those characters. The lazy person's Agatha Christie. And so we're just going to bonk them on the head. There's no like actual narrative consequence to them getting knocked out other than just to explain where they were when this other thing happened, which is pretty fun. I think I watched uh, Deadly Lessons this last week. I don't really know how to describe this movie. So instead, I'll read 
some of my favorite letterboxed reviews. One of the most deranged outsider vanity projects I've ever encountered. A pseudo-religious heal by the power of the mind mystery film by way of After Hours and The Room. Sort of like if Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2 was The Astrologer. This is a half-star one. A simply incredible achievement in filmmaking. Feels like it came from another dimension. Basically Willy Wonka for perverts. And lastly, you know how there's that guy who said that cellar door is like the most beautiful phrase in the English language? Yes, I've heard this. I think it's this. I think this is the most beautiful phrase in the English language. Tommy Wiseau's Dead Poet Society starring John Voight as Jiminy Glick. Whoa. And here's the thing. Having watched it, it is all of those things. It's a wild film. Truly baffling. Yeah. Podcast audience, please take note. Whenever Connor mentions, I don't know. I, I want to give a moniker that's appropriate because I love these kinds of films too, but I don't want to call it trash cinema or so bad it's good cinema. I used to call it bad crazy cinema. But whenever Connor recommends a bad crazy movie, you go run it. Because look at it. Because then years later, Cinematic Void is doing 35 millimeter screenings of it. Connor called out Spookies two years ago. I'll, also, I'll say this about Deadly Lessons. It's an epic bad movie. It's two hours and 15 minutes. And it's got the Void in it. It's got John Voight in a fat suit. Whoa. He is Jiminy Glick. He is like constantly <laughs> eating chocolate bars. Uh, last movie I wanted to shout out. Maybe the biggest surprise of the Halloween season for me is this movie called Bad Ben. Made for $300 by one middle-aged man from New Jersey. It is a paranormal activity style movie. The difference is that I'm going to kind of censor the language used here because I don't want too many bleeps in this episode. Whenever the ghost stuff happens, the guy's like, ah, damn it. These ghosts get out of here. These ghosts keep, keep bothering me. Damn it, get the hell out of my house. There's like a point where like ashes of the ghosts that died there get spilled on the floor and the ghosts write not your house and the ashes and he and he like wipes out the hell it is. I'll show you whose house it is. It is like heartwarmingly good. It is like he has such good comedic timing. He has a really good sense of like story escalation because sometimes horror movies have that thing where every it's kind of like a repetitive scene, scene, scene. And, and this does a good job of each scare scene build something new into the story. Besides just being a great fun movie, it, it is heartwarming because it's just this middle aged guy clearly using his own house, 300 bucks. Good for him. And it's a it's a great movie. When we were watching it, I was like, this kind of reminds me of Barbarian in some ways. And then uh, my friend Paul, a recent guest on the show, he actually found an interview with the director of Barbarian where he mentions Bad Ben as an inspiration on the film. You know, I did a marathon. I brain danced saw some cool monster movies on 16 millimeter, which were great. We had someone here from last night who was saying that that brain dead marathon was awesome. It was. It kicked ass. It was probably the best programming ever for horror movies. I'm just saying. No offense, Craig. No, no, I don't. No offense taken. They were saying they really did a good job at how they ordered the movies. Were you ever going to show them? We call Parasite from 1982. Daniel, look at you, you bastard. I'm going to kick ass, by the way. I did Palooza, which was a pain in the ass. It's a lot of cool things. Spent a lot of money. And I, I watch a good amount of horror movies like The Fan, The Keep, which was awesome. Alligator, The Blob, which was awesome. I didn't give a shit about the 50s one because it was just pure bad. Um, you know, the one thing I am proud of this month at the store where I work at Hollywood Book and Poster. Is that you helped a homeless person? I hope that's how this goes. Shut up. Craig. Do we have to put an ad segment in the corner? Well, anyway, at Hollywood <laughs> Book and Poster, 
We acquired a guy's collection of a lot of posters from Paramount since he used to work for Paramount in the old days. And one of the posters that we got was an original Friday the 13th poster in one sheet, and it looks super cool in great condition. They've got some dope stuff. Edwin has sent me many of things that get snatched up before I can get them, but it's okay. I know Edwin gave me a shot of a amazing original Nashville poster. And if we had extra money, I would have grabbed them. And he's keeping me abreast of some cool lobby cards too, which I do. Again, it just depends on our budget, but I appreciate that Edwin. Anyway, what else did you do? Any, any other things? Uh, you know, I just, I just worked last night. Sucked. Uh, so, you know, you know, just Halloween, man. You know, <laughs> I, I, I was at the Hollywood Legion uh, the other day for Gremlins, which kicked ass, by the way. It was so cool. I do, I do this cool. There's a, there's a fun thing uh, on Letterboxd every year. It's called Hooptober, and it's basically like a, a 31 movies in 31 days type of thing. I, I cheat and do it through September, too, because I, I can't guarantee that I can do a movie a day. But it sort of themes it. So like every year, it gives you all these things you have to do. It has to be from like six countries. They need to be movies that span uh, at least eight decades. This year, I had to have two insect-centered films, one set in space, two animated, one about a bloodthirsty old person or people, two from the 70s that are specifically regional, a German silent movie, by letterbox standards, the worst rated horror sequel from the 90s that you haven't seen. And then it has like a collection of directors, you need to do five from them, two Christopher Lee movies, one with a real musician, or it's about a band, uh, a Stephen King adaptation that you haven't seen, a Lon Chaney, not junior, film. I watched The Unknown from the 20s. And then there always must be a, a Tobey Hooper film. So it's kind of a cool way to have a little marathon, but really focus on stuff that you probably don't know, which has been my case. I think it's a very fun way to Yeah, do I was going to say that's very, that's very specific, actually. Because I, I love it. It changes every year. So they give you new things every year, but it's a fun way for me to sort of watch things that are maybe off my radar some of them are hard to find but stuff i mean like cinephile and um our buddies over in uh pasadena videotech came in clutch some of the standout stuff i watched Catherine bigelow's near dark which i had never seen which rules my favorite thing about it is it's the second movie along with twister i'm from oklahoma this is known if bill paxton goes to oklahoma bad stuff happens unfortunately <laughs> Is there a third movie where he goes to Oklahoma? In my brain, aliens could have taken place there. I don't know. <laughs> I watched Watcher from this year, directed by Chloe Acuno. It stars, um, I think her name's pronounced Micah Monroe. She was from It Follows. The guest. She's great. Watcher's got like a very, it's kind of like a rear window vibe with a thriller aesthetic that was was quite good. At the club, we did the a 16 millimeter marathon with See It On 16. Michael, lovely, lovely man. Uh, some stuff I had never seen. Mikey, yeah, Mikey Aguirre. Check him out. Uh, See It on 16mm is run by a gentleman named Mikey Aguirre. Yeah, he brought three of his 16mm prints and some trailers. Absolute sweetheart. Doing some very cool stuff. And he's he's like touring. He's like a musician. He's touring around SoCal, screening all this stuff. The man's a legend, right, Daniel? The man's he is a legend. legend. The guy's a god, right, man? A tall legend. But some really cool stuff. Some stuff that I had, I had seen in like Mystery Science Theater, but I had never just watched. And it's very strange to have sort of the Mystery <laughs> Science Theater 3000 mindset, but then watch the movie just as the movie. And then he, he turned me on to some stuff. I think he called it uh, Mexican trash cinema from like the 80s, like Cemetery of Terror and Grave Robbers which both slapped. I think he screened those at the Frida. And then my standout this month I wrote was Pearl. Everybody's saying this. Was the secretly shot prequel to Ty West's X, but is a completely different beast. It has the aesthetic and has this very odd, like a Disney princess movie vibe. 
super vibrant blue sky feels very storybooky and then obviously it's this sort of horror thriller but it's a completely different movie than x i'd say if you didn't like x you might like pearl they're very different in very cool ways i think josh i saw it with other secret movie clubber josh oakley and we both agreed that mia goth i know the oscars don't really focus on uh horror for things but mia goth should be in, in talks for best actress award her performance in this is nuts there's a there's a scene that, it feels showy offy when i say that loud but it's it's basically like a 10 minute monologue that is every realm of emotions and you realize like six minutes in that the camera hasn't cut she's just delivering and it's very impressive and very weird to make sort of a climactic horror scene be this like very emotional distraught monologue that's really beautiful we did some stuff with the club. One of my favorite movies, horror movies, is the, the 80s blob. And that was very cool to get to watch with an audience. Because with a reactive crowd, that movie really slaps. And that crowd was very reactive. And it was a chef's kiss moment. Good thing we fixed the sound in that movie. Or else Alex Olivia be... came in clutch with a quick clean. and It was a very clean show, too. Very clean, very smooth, very quick. Super quick. It was awesome. I loved it. Not a lot of talking. I think Edwin is referring to the fact that I wasn't there. Oh, you were there? Oh, I, I Well, did. it was extended, though. I was being... Edwin was following me with a camera. Yeah, that was a thing Edwin was doing for a while. As a, a filmmaker who prefers to be behind the lens, it was really scary. That was my horror moment of this October. It was my own little watch. <laughs> <laughs> <Edwin. laughs> <Come on. laughs> he activated his angina with that one. Oh, and I forgot to mention, have you guys watched uh, Phil Tibbins' Mad God? No, I need to. It is dope. Highly recommend that. I actually got a book based on, I heard him interviewed about Mad God, and he mentioned, I, I had no idea about this, Carl Jung's Red Book. So I got it because I'm obsessed with Jung. But I mean, this movie, I want to screen it, actually. It's on my list of things to screen at the club, but tell us about it. It's a stop motion horror thing and it's it's essentially it kind of feels like dante's inferno like there's not real dialogue it's sort of the experience of this descent into a hellscape and what you can get away with in effects for stop motion is it's it's repulsive constantly in ways that you, you the dread of it becomes like what are that what am i going to have to experience next but it's really cool because it's intercut with with some cleverly shot live action stuff for some elements the whole design of the movie is is it's very dope I think Shudder, the streaming service Shudder has it, but if, if a screening, I would love to see it with an audience. It's a, it's, it's an experience for sure. For people who don't know who Phil Tippett is, he was the go-to stop motion maestro for over a decade and did all the stop motion in the original Star Wars movies. So the stop motion in Empire, which is one of the apotheoses of stop motion post Ray Harryhausen, is Phil Tippett. And then when Jurassic Park came out, Phil Tippett was going to do the dinosaurs and stay on as a consultant, but that's when the switch happened to digital instead of stop motion as the go-to for that kind of effect. And from that point, 91 until just last year, so what is that? That's almost 30 years. Phil Tippett was working on this film as this sort of summation statement on this type of special effect that had been around since uh, The Lost World in 1925. And I am desperate to see it. And he went crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's the wrong way to put it. I'm sorry. He is very open. He actually had several breakdowns making the movie. It's a fascinating movie, too, about where he was. And he was very open about it. He, did you hear his interviews, Daniel, about what happened to him? Yeah, that was what turned me on to the movie. Um, I had never heard of it. And you can feel that. I feel like it feels like a therapy session of someone sort of contending with with all of their emotions, especially knowing how spread out the shoot was. 
you can you can feel it from scene to scene. I, I think he got uh, diagnosed he not with bipolar, but he's unipolar, monopolar. He never experienced the depressive. He only experienced the manic. But the manic would last. He, he didn't realize he had it for a few years. But then one night he kept going in. Connor, you always talk about that scene in the house that Jack built. That's like a great signifier of what OCD really feels like. He said that he kept uh, he was like, I'm done for the night. He'd go to his car. Then he'd come back to get his keys kind of thing. And he'd look and he would stay like 16 more hours. And he started doing that over and over and over and over and over again. And then he had to check himself in because he was like, something's wrong here. Something's going on. And he was triggering himself into a manic state, but without ever experiencing the, the depressive state. And that was wild to me. So, I mean, for people who may experience something and they're like, well, I don't think this is bipolar because I'm not depressed. There is a unipolar. Incredible interview. There, there were a number of movies that we showed in October that really got me thinking. Uh, one that I really, really want to call out is the 1973 Bill Gunn movie, Ganja and Hess. I had heard about this movie for a while because uh, Spike Lee remade it as The Sweet Blood of Jesus. It was one of Spike Lee's Kickstarter movies a, f- a number of years ago. He made it, I believe, in 2013 or around there, the early 2010s. At that time when it came out, no one knew what it was about. And then when it came out, all these critics in the know were like, Spike Lee has remade Ganja and Hess. So I really wanted to program Ganja and Hess. We did. If you've never seen it, it's a, this wild movie from 1973 by Bill Gunn, who only made three films in his lifetime, all really admired. It stars Dwayne Jones, who also starred in George Romero's Night of the Living Dead as the lead. He plays this affluent anthropologist who gets an unstable assistant. It's very interesting how it reconfigures the Dracula mythos, almost like a Renfeld, but it's played by the director himself, Bill Gunn, who stabs him with this ancient African dagger. And then Hess develops this unquenchable thirst for blood. But there's certain tropes that don't carry, like he can go out in the daytime. The assistant's wife, Ganja, comes, and she's incredible. And they start an affair, Ganja and Hess, and they get married. And then he wants her to be like him. Then she develops an unquenchable thirst for blood. But what's crazy is the movie obeys no rules of genre. It really becomes this very individualistic, incredible statement on, as I understood it, I was talking to our projectionist and secret movie club team member, Alex Olivier, because it's very much about the black experience as well. This is something that's really important for people to know. All the main characters are black. It's really about the black experience being black in the seventies, contending also with the materialistic nature of American society, about wanting to be an artist, about sexuality, about bisexuality. There's this story that went doing my research, it's the only way I can sort of explain the movie, is some critic when it came out who was mystified by it, thinking they were going to get a black exploitation vampire movie, was like, I don't know what this movie was. Bill Gunn never really addresses the race issue, the race problem. Where's the race problem? And Bill Gunn was so furious. He wrote a New York Times op-ed, which I recommend people read, where he said, well, the race problem is in your review. (laughs) And it was a white critic who had written the review. And Bill Gunn's point, as I understood it, was this white critic was telling Bill Gunn he had to make a movie as a black man that addressed the race issue. And Bill Gunn was like, F you, I'm a man. 
and I'm an artist and I made the movie I wanted to make. And you're telling me as a white critic, I have to make a movie that somehow is your idea of what a black movie is. And I think that this was Spike Lee's point in remaking it. And weirdly was I, I saw it. I was like, well, this movie is filled with America and where we're at and all these things. But it is its own thing. There's an incredibly unsettling, beautiful sequence where Ganja, the woman, she seduces a man and then sort of kills him. But then his body is covered in this gorgeous, glistening sweat. And then there's blood everywhere and there's this music and it's very just incredibly singularly shot. So I just anyway, it's a very fascinating film. Uh, I really recommend it. Ganja and has. And then the only other movie I'll talk about right now, even though I want to talk about it a ton, is we also did Julia Ducourneau's Raw, which is her movie before Titan. And I really had to brace myself for it because I am not a fan of cannibal movies. I know I've talked about this before. I'm not a fan of slasher movies, but if, if people are like, you got to see this one, I'll see it. I am even more not a fan of cannibal movies. I mean, I know something's going on in our society because more and more of them are getting made. The guy who made Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria, the remake of Suspiria, is it Luca Guidagino? At this point, he would be very well known to people. He made I Am Love, his new movie, Bones and All, starring Chalamet again. And uh, I guess Michael Stuhlbarge has kind of a creepy supporting part, is again about capitalism or cannibalism. Rather. Oh, interesting. Freudian slip <laughs> yeah, same thing. Well, no, I think there's nuance there. I, I As a business owner, I, would, I wouldn't demonize capitalism. It's certainly has huge flaws for sure. I want to be very clear about that. And we're actually not, I would point out to people, the United States is actually not purely capitalist. It's something people don't like to talk about, but we actually have a lot of socialism in our society and our government, social security, which my grandparents received and people with disabilities receive, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, that, that's a conversation for another time. Maybe this is why I picked these two movies. Raw, Julia Ducourneau, she said the same thing when I did my research, which was she hated people being like, what a feminist film. Man, you really made a movie about women. You're a female filmmaker. And she was furious. She was like, I just want to be a filmmaker. I want people to just say it was a good movie. I don't want people to condescendingly, patronizingly say it is a feminist film or I am a feminist filmmaker. And I think that's really like I took her point. I will say I found it really unsettling, Raw. I was, some people had told me it wasn't going to be as disturbing as Teton. I will say uh, it was as disturbing as Teton, <laughs> at least for me. I did not find that it was mellower than Teton. I think it's a fascinating movie. I think it's a great movie, a good movie. I did have to brace myself. I love that as a pitch, though. I love watching Teton and someone being like, Raw's a little bit chiller. <laughs> That's the craziest sentiment. Yeah, and if you see Teton, it being a little chiller is really no indication of what it really is. Because when I saw it in that scene at the end, which I won't ruin here, but there's a scene at the end, I was hoping not to get that scene. I was like, oh. I very often see things like that by myself and my wife will be like, I, I really want to see it. Do you think I should? And I was like, you will think about this for weeks. I think in a way that I think is incredible in art, but in a way that might affect you in a way that you may not enjoy. I really like Raw. I like my buttons pushed sometimes. I don't always like them where it feels like a little bit manipulative. If that's where, but I didn't feel that. I thought the subject matter of Raw was, was so interesting. And I think because it was so visceral and I've only seen it one time and it was with an audience and... There were reactions and there were walkouts. And I think the experience of just like that in the community was fascinating because I had never really, I hadn't really experienced a walkout movie before. I hear about them all the time, but I was surprised by people and I could hear people's verbal and sometimes bodily reactions to things <laughs> where they were so uncomfortable 
that they couldn't hide it. But I, I really liked it. Very strong performances and the unsettling message of it all I thought was was quite effective. I had the exact same reaction I had with Teton. It, when it was done, I was thinking, well, that was an experience and she's definitely a voice, but I don't know if it, for me, it completely worked. But as I thought about it, it became very rich and rewarding to me. And I do have to tell people that I am a Julia Ducourneau fan because even though the movies are very aggressive in a certain way and very in your face in a certain way that you have to be ready for, but in the end, there's a reason she's doing that. And when I think about it later, what she's saying in Raw about this kind of behavior being passed down through the family and how the family deals or copes with it, there's something really profound here. And and in Teton, what she's saying about family again. So I really recommend that people see both movies, but I will tell you, brace yourself. Even if you're a fan of horror, they are not what I would call entertaining movies by the traditional American sense of them. They are sometimes you got to like, okay, here we go. Here's the scene. <laughs> and then and then just watch it. But Julia Ducourneau is a voice, and I think one of our most interesting filmmakers right now, because she's making movies on her terms. That's what I'm trying to get at. And you got to respect that. This this was the first year in a few years that sort of I felt things, um, not normal, but the world felt a little bit better. It did. It did. I think that's a good call. It did. You know, we did. Connor was here last night. And we had sold out people in costume. You do feel that the, the whole COVID phase, and it, it's still with us in a certain way. And 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 I want to be very respectful of that. We're about to head into winter, but you can feel that we're we're heading into a different period now. The endemic. Yeah, what it was is now more in the rearview mirror than out the windshield. October is sort of like the peak holiday for movies. And I got to say, we've got a lot of great audience people, a lot of great people in this community of LA specific film lovers. But the horror community is one of my favorites. They're such a great, diverse, interesting crowd of people who are always in great moods. I love that like the worst subject matter brings out like the loveliest <laughs> conversations and people who are just in it for this great experience together. I think it's a very special thing. I kind of get suspicious of people who don't like any of it to a certain degree. I mean, I guess I get it when people have some sort of personal like issues. But if you have like a pretty relatively normal life and you don't want to address it at all, that makes me feel like you're hiding something. Like you've got something secret, something actually dark. You know, I didn't say this yesterday because I wanted to whatever get to the movie and not fulfill Edwin's worst stereotype of me. But in doing my research for Trick or Treat, Michael Doherty was actually talking about what you just said, Connor. He's from Ohio. He said the reason he set the movie in Ohio and actually he pointed out that a number of classic uh, American horror movies take place in Ohio. He said because he feels that at a certain point, Ohio was your prototypical quintessential Midwestern state. And he said that for him, it's exactly what you said. He said when there's a veneer of, oh, this is a safe, calm, boring suburb, suburb or neighborhood, he said there's always weird stuff going on under the surface about that. And you should always be a little suspicious if everything seems perfectly normal. I was like, that's a really interesting thing. It's weird when it has to be smiles all the time. I don't like that. Like, that's just not a natural way for things to be, you know? I lived in Prague when I was 19. And I just want to point out, it was because I found out it was cheaper to live in Prague than to go to USC for a semester. And I still got GE credit. And I was like, and I'm going to save $5,000 by doing this forward exchange program. That was like a no brainer. So I did a semester of GEs in Prague because it was right when Prague had its velvet revolution. And I, so kid you not, you could get a steak, potato, three beers, and a vodka for $3.50. 
It was like those days are gone. But this was 1997. Anyway, I saved all my lunch money, my lunch stipend money, and I bought a Eurail pass at the end of it. I didn't eat lunch. I dropped 15 pounds. And at the end of that semester, I had enough money to get a Eurail pass. And I went through Europe. And what was fascinating to me, Connor, I, I don't know if this is quite here or there, but I found that I loved Italy. It, it may be because I'm, I'm Italian. My grandmother was half Italian. Maybe that was it. Maybe it's just such a great country with all the art and, you know, my Catholicism and whatever. But... In Italy, in Rome specifically, people would yell at you in your face, but then they were over it. And I found over time <laughs> that I preferred that because I knew exactly where people stood. When I was in Italy, if someone was angry with me, they were angry with me. If someone was happy, they were happy. And people in Europe talk about this, but the further north you go, it's like the snowy, the weather thing. You have no idea if people are holding a grudge, if they're happy or if they're angry or if they're sad or they're depressed, they bury it. Now, and that's a gross stereotype, and forgive me about that. But it was in Italy, in the Mediterranean, you knew. People were very emotional. And I think about that, which is that in America, there's a bit of a stigma against really expressing what you're feeling, I think, in naked terms. And then it explodes in a mass shooting or something. I mean, in just really weird ways. No, for sure. Also, the Italians do all the... <laughs> Hand gestures. So. Oh, dude, I was a quick story. We'll go to pop culture. Final thoughts. I got too many stories in Italy, but literally I, I get off the train and this guy comes up to me and he puts a bracelet on me. This word to the wise if anyone ever goes to Rome. And he's like, this is for you. And I was like, sir, I'm, I'm sorry. I got no money. He's like, no, it's a free. It's a free. And you know, I mean, and I'm a dumb guy. I really am dumb and naive. I was like, ah, I'm really telling you I have no money. He's like, no, welcome to Rome. It's a free. And he ties it onto my, my wrist. And then he puts another one. He's like, but this one you pay for. And he put the second one. I was like, <laughs> I was like, sir, I, I really have no money. And he was like, you pay for it. And I was like, I have no money. And he pulled a blade on me and he went like this and looked at me. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, I have no money. And he just cut both of them off and then yelled at me in Italian and walked off. And I was like, welcome to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> that was my baptism into Rome. Mamma Mia. All right, pop culture and final thoughts. I wanted to say I very rarely get into uh, new musicians, bands, artists, whatever, and I got into one. Usually it's like every couple of years I get really into one. Last one was like Nine Inch Nails, honestly, a couple of years ago. And uh, I've really gotten into the metal band. They are a new band that is a metal band. They are not a new metal band because that's a very specific thing. But the uh, band Ghost, which is a, I think, Swedish band they would make you kind of nervous craig because their whole gimmick is they're like a church but for the devil and the main guy is playing like an evil pope uh, a black pope a dark pope what do they call those guys i mean that's a whole thing he calls himself papa emeritus he's had multiple incarnations but it sounds actually more though like classic 80s 90s kind of uh metal i'll just shout out a couple songs to recommend or like witch image ritual year zero my favorite song of theirs is probably this song called cerise which is spelled c-i-r-i-c-e crucified call me a little sunshine is really good mariana cross that's a provocative title yeah mariana cross is uh, a song about having sex with somebody they have a song in the credits of halloween kills called hunter's moon that kind of seems like it's from the perspective of michael myers <laughs> yeah they're a good band and uh you can find me at twitch.tv slash connor cruz and Watch me play D and D Tuesday evenings. Switch that TV slash Nerd Holla. I didn't do much. Um, I just got some records and a couple of novelization. I got a Cyanide Fever novelization for free, so that was pretty cool. 
The most thing I'm excited for this month for myself is my birthday screening, and that's about it. Uh, November 15th at uh, the Secret Movie Club, I'm showing two Godzilla movies that a certain someone didn't show in 2019, because obviously he didn't do his homework. And that a certain someone now has just searched high and low for two 35mm prints for you, so that you could have your birthday screening <sighs> on a Tuesday when I'm normally with my family. That certain uh, someone buddy, rescheduled this, 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 his this, week... No. So you can get two 35 millimeter prints that you chose. So keep going about bagging on that certain someone, please. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, just come down to the club, uh, watch some cool uh, Godzilla uh, films on 35. And uh, I'll be uh, doing a little uh, special uh, 35 millimeter pre-show as well, uh, right after uh, the other pre-show. And uh, yeah, pretty cool. Oh, and uh, my good friend, uh, Angel Sierra, will be uh, bringing a, an original one-sheet poster of Godzilla 85 for display. As soon as you get that poster case, uh... Kevin's whining. Come here, gonna be on the final. Part. Kevin was like, "Why? Why does Edwin treat the other man so bad?" Did you hear that? Kevin actually spoke. Uh, I'm the same man. We're in swamped movie season mode. If you're in in the new release realm, Park Chan Wook's newest Decision to Leave came out. I've seen it twice. I love it. It's kind of like a sexy Hitchcock thriller. Love the man, Martin Mc. Donna? It's a new one. The Banshees of Inishirin also came out. Seen that twice. The trick is go to 10 o'clock movies and be very tired as you watch them and struggle to stay awake so that you can try and keep up with stuff. It's also really beautiful. I wasn't huge on three billboards. I really want to revisit it. But his thing here is very much someone who seems to be like aware of their age and the way that friendships ebb and flow. It's, it's a really good movie. Great. And then Tar. Tar is the one. If, honestly, if you're going to see one... Tar is, is, a, is a stunner. Yeah, I really want to see it. And I think it'll have a lot of awards talk. There's so much good stuff right now. It's insane. I can't keep up. God bless cinema. And Kevin Kevin watched um, Barbarian and Pearl with us last night. Uh, she barked a lot at Barbarian. Actually, and Pearl, because there's a lot of farm animals. And she had some <laughs> stuff to say. I finished The Count of Monte Cristo. I did love it. And I'm actually really wrestling with the ending. I was so into The Count of Monte Cristo that I was taking notes the whole time. And guessing how the end would be. Alexander Dumas, it's a 1,600-page book. It was serialized like Charles Dickens. So everybody in France and Europe was obsessed with this. And it was coming out like every month. And he does this amazing thing. And I... I Everyone should read it. But every single thing in the book pays off, which is actually pretty incredible because there's a point in the midpoint of the book where he suddenly goes off for 40 pages about these Italian bandits. And you're like, what do these Italian bandits have to do with anything? And for the next 800 pages, you're like, I, if I was making a movie, I'd drop the Italian bandits. And then the end comes and you're like, oh, this is why we had to find out about the Italian bandits, I guess, for like 50 pages in the middle. The ending, and I'm not going to say what the ending is because this is an instance where I actually don't think it's appropriate to spoil it. I do recommend you read it. Uh, once you get into it, it flies. It's like it. If you know, you've ever read a long Stephen King book, you're like, I don't know. And then suddenly you're like done with it in two weeks. You're like, how did I just read that 1600 page book in two weeks? And the Count of Monte Cristo would be the it of the uh, mid 19th century. And when you get to the end of it, you have all these, depending on who you are, I hope it ends this way. I'd like it. to. And the way that it ends I really am still wrestling with a little bit I, because I'm like trying to get into the character's psychology and mindset and go, is that actually because the way I would do it or is the way that I would do it too American and too happy in a certain way and too neat and too much giving the audience what they want and actually is what Dumas did uh, more truthful in 
the reality of how those people would be at the end of this thing that happened. I will say a final thing on Count of Monte Cristo that I did love is, is it's very much about providence. There's a quote early on that I put to memory, which is that there's a providence that watches over the deserving, which is a very controversial statement. Is that, is that not true? There's also something about providence and grace and God and revenge. And if someone can feel that they're an instrument of karma. Can you ever do that in revenge? What he does that's fascinating is that the three people that you loathe, who this is giving away nothing because it happens right at the beginning of the novel, but these three men do this really genuinely nice guy, Edmond Dantes, our hero. They get him imprisoned in this Chateau d'If, this island prison, for their own selfishness. And then he's forgotten. And basically, they hope he dies and he's never heard from again for their own selfish reasons. So he's done dirty in the very beginning of the book, and he was just about to get married. And then the rest of the book is this rip-roaring adventure about how Edwin Dantes, all these things happen. He's he suddenly, and I don't want to give it away, but just, just, I mean, it's an amazing opener. Like as a screenwriter, you're in, you're like, oh, these mother, like these guys. But then as the novel progresses, Dumas does this really interesting thing where as much as these guys are awful, you wonder if is what's happening like, do they really deserve this? Can one person do this to another person? And it, you go back and forth on it. I have too much. to I would So I guess I'm going to end on this. I'd love to talk to someone about the Count of Monte Cristo because I went and looked at how movies have adapted it and they've changed the ending to how I would do it. And that makes me be like, huh? OK, so the people who make the movies also felt the same thing I felt. But I wonder if the novel's ending is more, more maybe rich. Uh, and I'm, so I'm, I'm wrestling with it. Anyway, uh, as always, thanks to our team here. This uh, episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. As always, you can find out what we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, Secret Movie Club podcast 125 is going to be about Richard Pryor, who I consider the GOAT. When it comes to stand-up comedy, that's not really a hot take. <laughs> a lot of great comedians consider Richard Pryor the goat. Uh, and then also when comedians uh, end up in movies. And there's so much to talk about there. This is everything from all the SNL cast members uh, who go on to amazing uh, or whatever you want to call them movie careers. John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Will Ferrell, most famous of all, Eddie Murphy. But then other people who get into cinema. You know, uh, I know that this is a controversial topic these days, but Woody Allen was a stand-up comic. Uh, who ended up becoming a huge writer-director of cinema. John Stewart has done a few movies. A lot of comedians end up going into cinema. So we're going to talk about Richard Pryor and his stand-up comedy movie, uh, Richard Pryor's Live at the Sunset Strip, 82, and then Comedians and Films. So as always, thank you guys. I will see you next week. Have a great week. Love you, family. Bye.